0: Well, good morning, you Life Cooling Gather. How exciting it is to be here this morning. I hope you guys come as excited as I do week in and week out as we open our word to God and uh, and we try to discern what is it that God might have to say to us today? What is it that he may desire to teach and to reveal to his people in this room. Um, we are going to be looking at John, the Gospel of John, chapter 13. If you have your Bibles, go ahead and flip them open uh, to the Gospel of John. But as you do that, if you haven't met me before, my name is David Scambry. I get the joy of being one of the pastors here at New Life Quillengada. And I get the privilege of continuing our series that we're on today, Rhythms um, Week 2. This is a, a series that we've been doing over the last few years to start um, the years. And it's a series that responds to a season that I think I would dub the season of the what. And what I mean is this, it's a season where we're obsessed with the what we could be achieving, with the what we could be changing, with the what we could be improving. And as we've entered this season as a church, we've discerned that perhaps the call of God isn't to be so obsessed with the what, but rather with the who, the who that we are becoming. As a people of Jesus, and so to do this, we have to take into account and consider the multifaceted, both intentional and unintentional habits that we formed as a people, and ask not only which ones do we have, but which ones should we have to become a people more like Jesus. And so, as we, the way this uh, will, look fun, will work functionally is simple, we're going to look at the life of Jesus. And we're not going to look so much so at the giant big miracles you all have come to know and love. We're going to look at all the moments in between. We're going to look at the rhythms that make up the fabric of Jesus' life. We're going to consider what it was that he did quietly and privately in the background to help to form him to be the kind of person that could carry on his shoulders the remarkable ministry and effect that he had on this earth. And then we're going to wonder how do we begin to follow in his footsteps as followers of Jesus to replicate these rhythms ourselves. And today we're going to be looking at a, an incredible rhythm, a rhythm that I think has uh, perhaps got some, ba- some baggage attached to it, but it, it's the rhythm of serving. Which if you consider the life of Jesus, this rhythm that he kept of serving wherever he went was so unbelievably central to shaping the very nature of his and the very orientation of the ministry and life he lived. And so I I would invite you to turn to John chapter 13 verse 1 today where we're going to dive into scripture and see what Jesus has to say about rhythms of serving. It says this, It was just before the Passover festival. Unless I wash you, you will have no part with me. Well, then, Lord, Simon Peter replies, not just my feet, but my hands and my head as well. And Jesus answers, those who have had a bath need only to wash their feet. Their whole body is clean. And you are clean, though not every one of you. For he knew who was going to betray him. And that was why he said, not everyone was clean. Verse 12. When he had finished washing their feet, he put on his clothes, returned to his seat. Do you understand what I have done for you? Have you ever encountered someone or or a moment where someone was so generous, so caring, so kind that it actually kind of left you feeling? awkward or uncomfortable or, you know, just a little bit unsettled in the moment. A couple of months ago, me and Ella, we went, to, we went to a cafe. We were doing some work. We were sitting there. We got hungry. We thought to ourselves, well, we're hungry. Let's get something to eat. We line up in the queue. And, and as we're waiting, the person who was being served turns around. And uh, of all the people, of all the days, it happened to be someone who knew me and, and I knew them. And we had gone to church together. And she was holding her little baby. She turns around and she, you know, throws a slew of questions at me, you know, how are you? Have you been? Haven't seen you in so long. What new, what's cracking? I start replying to her 430 questions, and all of a sudden, she interrupts me totally, and she just does this like wave of her hand, and in, you know, the baked goods cabinet was there, the server was here, and she was just like, Urgh! and the um, guy who was serving looked absolutely shocked. I looked absolutely shocked, and I think we both just thought, what is she going to say next? And here's what she said. She said, anything you want. What is it that you lined up to get? Let me shout you. Let me get it for you. Now, if you don't know anything at all about Gold Coast cafes, and probably cafes the world over, but particularly Gold Coast cafes, let me tell you, you pay astronomical prices for a slab of bread with some crushed up avocado on top of it. Like, that is all you need to know. So here's me and Ella standing there with this mum holding her baby in one hand, and we were thinking, there is no way I'm going to make this poor kind of mom, you know, spend $50 on me and Ella being too lazy to go home and make lunch for ourselves, right? And so we both had the same thought, responded kind of differently. You know, she goes... The a lady, she says, she says, um, so what were you lining up to buy? And Ella replies, nothing. And uh, <laughs> you know, I look to the floor, and went, that's not going to swing. Um, <laughs> and and so I look at the menu, and and, and I reflected on it, and went, we're not getting out of this without this lovely human being buying us something. And so I, I got a drink, and me and Ella took that drink, went back to our seats, and we sat down. But but there was a problem that continued to exist. Me and Ella were still hungry. And uh, we didn't want to be rude and we didn't want to just go up and order having rejected this person's generosity. And so we just, you know, thought, why not? Let's just sit here and wait until this person leaves. And I smiled because, like, it was the most ridiculous. I swear, that was the day she lined up 143,000 of her closest friends to come in one after the other after the other. And without an exaggeration, we sat there for two hours hours waiting for lunch, and then finally, you know, our bodies withering and us dying slowly, we could go and order our eggs benny for brunch. It was an absolute nightmare. The crazy thing is, generosity has the power to stun us, to jar us, to leave us feeling awkward and to leave us feeling uncomfortable. It's as though generosity has the power to remind us how incongruent the way of Jesus is is to, to the ways we've come to expect of society around us. My hope today, as we look at the rhythms of serving, is that we wouldn't leave weighed down by conscience-driven condemnation of our need to serve and our utter failure if we don't. It's that we would actually be liberated with this joyful vision of what it could mean for us to sow our time and our talents and our opportunities into the tapestry that God is weaving into the world all around us, the tapestry of love and kindness. My hope and simple is this, that we as a room will come to truly, genuinely believe that, that these hands and these feet and this mouth and all the talents in this room it's something that God not only can, but wants to use to unhinge the power of brokenness in this world and make more known His stunning, beautiful reality to the people around Him. And also, my hope is this that if nothing else, we would leave this place knowing just how stunning and rich and kind the wonderful, serving God that we get to know is. I know what you're thinking big game, big goals. How about we pray? and see what God wants to say. Father God, I thank you so much that you are present in this room. I thank you so much that you have never, ever even once thought, even for a second of not showing up today, that you have purposed and planned to make something beautiful become reality in and amongst this room. I pray, Lord, that this morning we would get excited and passionate for what it is that you might want to tell us. I pray, Holy Spirit, you will come and humble and soften our hearts, I pray, Lord, you would take away whatever hardness may have been built up, but rather we would become just so um, just caught up in the delight of knowing you. I just pray, God, that, that whatever we leave with today, we leave first knowing that you are the God who serves and cares and pours yourself out for all people, and that we, the recipients of that, are okay in your hands. And I pray we may be stirred by that shocking reality to leave a, a taste of that in the world around us. Lord, thank you so much for your care. Thank you so much for your concern. Jesus, thank you for your blood that was effective. And in your mighty and beautiful and perfect name we pray. Amen. Verse 4 says this. So he got up from the meal. He took off his outer clothing, wrapped a towel around his waist. And after that, he poured water into a basin and began to wash his disciples' feet, drying them with the towel that was wrapped around him. He came to Simon Peter, who said to him, Lord, are you going to wash my feet? And Jesus replies, and I just love the way Jesus replies here. He's funny. He goes, you do not realize what I am now, what I'm doing now, but later you will understand. Or or just simply put, Peter, Peter, I know you, buddy. Peter, just pause for a minute. Do you remember that moment when I I fed the 5,000 or I quieted the storm? Do you remember those moments where I've healed and done remarkable, miraculous things? I know you don't know what I'm doing, Peter, but would you just trust me? No! said Peter. I just love Peter. He's so audacious. Jesus goes, slow down, horsey. Don't be crazy. Just trust me. And Peter goes, no, you shall never wash my feet. And Jesus answered, well, unless I wash you, you will have no part with me. And then in the most Simon Peter way ever, he does a full 180 and and argues in the opposite direction. He goes, well then, Lord, uh, not just my feet, but my hands and my head as well. And, and Jesus answers, I can imagine, I don't know if this is true, I'm fully making up stuff right now, but I can imagine Jesus face palming, like, oh my goodness. And he goes, those who have had a bath need only to wash their feet, their whole body is clean and you are clean. Or in other words, he says, would you just trust me? Now, I'm reading this scripture, and I don't know about you in this room, but I read this scripture, and I kind of get distracted. I get kind of caught up, and I'm thinking something along the lines of, ew, feet, that's disgusting. I have literally got no interest in cleaning anybody's manky, sweaty sock feet. And and if you're like me in this room, uh, but probably not as random, you're probably at the very least thinking, that's a big move. Like, what a random thing to do. Why does Jesus get up and make a decision to wash their feet? And when we read Scripture, we're kind of um, confirmed that this is shocking. I mean, we read the response of Simon Peter, and he is truly and overwhelmingly shocked by these series of events. Yet culturally, the disdain that Peter had had nothing to do with the act of feet being washed. You see, in their culture, this was literally a daily necessity. You have to wash feet. Imagine it, okay? You're living in Israel in the first century, and you get up in the morning, you have a bath, you're shiny, clean, you're looking great for the day, and then you put on your flip-flops, your Havanas, your Berks, whatever. You go outside, and as you start walking, you start picking up sand and grime and dirt. And as you go in the beaming hot sun, and it's hot, and you start sweating, it becomes this disgusting, you know, hogmosh of gross sweat. Grimy, sandy, ill under your feet, and then your best friend Bob says, Why don't you come on over and have dinner at my house? And so you knock on the door and you go in, and you both look down at, my, at your feet, and it's kind of embarrassing to see all that dirt like, caked up in there, you know, in their freshly clean house. And so they have a basin right by the front door. And if the house could afford it, they would have a servant, if not, it would often be the wife. And they would kneel down and take your grimy, dirty, sandy, sweaty feet, and clean it all all off. What a stunning, stunning thing to do. You see, it wasn't the feet washing. It was the feet washer that was shocking to Peter. Friends, it wasn't the feet washing, but the foot washer that shocked Peter. You see, it appears that there is a kindness and a concern that Jesus had that was so countercultural that it was even jarring to Peter after three years of seeing it unveil over and over and over again in front of him. And yet in the context of Christ's life so far, I'm going to argue that it's a scarcely scandalous act that he did something like humble himself and love. In fact, I think this is emblematic of the vast concern and mercy and compassion that Christ's ministry is just bubbling to the brim and summed up with Jesus. Jesus always shows concern and mercy and compassion for the people he encounters. And so I don't think it's that unlike Jesus at all to serve other people. You know, there's this verse in in, in Matthew 15 where it talks about great crowds of suffering people that that are coming to him and how he just serves them. And, and, And the point being that suffering people think there's a remedy in Christ because Christ had a reputation of being someone approachable to even great masses of people. And I don't know about you, but the more of something I see, the less I notice it. You know what I mean? Like, um, like the more I see pain and suffering in this world, I don't know why, but for some reason, I struggle to see it quite as much. My heart goes a bit number, a bit colder. I don't know what to do about it all. But that's not what we see of Christ in the scripture. Great crowds came to him in pain and in agony, and they were amu- uh, amazed. Why? Because he healed them because he stepped in to their needs and provided a solution. This is our Jesus, who, surrounded by suffering, did not choose apathy, but remained approachable. Matthew 11 goes on to tell us that they um, that Jesus had quite literally gained this reputation amongst the elites in society, and he was described as a friend to sinners and a friend to the outcast. He was the kind of person that the kind of people that nobody wanted to hang with would feel safe hanging with. He was the kind of person that on your worst and most low and most broken day, you would feel safe to go and have a coffee with. That was who Jesus had a reputation for being, a Jesus who had every right to be judgmental and shaming, you know, being God himself. And instead of judgmental, he chose genuine love. And a few chapters later, and and actually before I go there, I want to say this. Friends, if you're in this room today and, and, and you're feeling, man, I'm just squashed. I'm just squashed. I look at my life and I look at the rhythms and the habits that I have formed and the way they are unforming, deforming me, the way that I keep choosing that habitual sin or I keep doing that stupid thing or I look at all my brokenness to my wounds and that's my fault and I see myself in the dirt in the mirror when I look at it and I am just lost in my own despair. If that is something you can relate to in this room, then I want you to hear the character of Jesus. He had a reputation for being the kind of person you would feel safe sitting with. No matter where any one of us are at, He's the kind of, he had a reputation for being the kind of person, if you had a need, he would be interruptible and and you could engage him and he would bless and love and meet you in the midst of that brokenness and depth. Friend, if you come today and you're feeling worn out, unlovable or broken, I want to let you know that you've come to the right place and Jesus is ready to meet you and do something stunning because that's who he is. And a few chapters later in Matthew 25, it teaches that in Jesus' most glorious moment, the only time in all of Scripture that he calls himself king, as he sits on this glorious throne, which is emblematic of rule and power and riches and authority, he calls that those who are filled with needs, those who are the lowest and the most broken, he calls them his brothers and his sisters, and shows that even as Jesus uh, is lofty on a throne, just cares so much for the lowest and the needy and the reality of the brokenness in and around us. You know, Jesus forfeited his privilege, his privilege and chose instead acts of genuine service. What a remarkable thing. Jesus' life, it was characterized by cultivated rhythms of swapping apathy for approachability exchanging judgment for genuine love and replacing his privilege with acts of service. And let me point this out. There was nobody in John 13 in that room who was less, had the job to serve than Jesus did. There was no one in the room more privileged to avoid serving than Jesus. And Jesus said, I forfeit that privilege to not serve. And instead I will serve and I will love and I will care. Because here's the thing, at this point, if you paid attention before, their feet should already have been washed. They were sitting at the dinner table. They were waiting for the food. Their feet should already have been washed. And it doesn't say it in Scripture. But I wonder if they walked in and there was a basin of water and nobody there to wash the feet. And, you know, you can imagine uh, Simon Peter, because who else would do it? Simon Peter walks in and he goes, I'm not washing my feet. And he walks off. And then Judas of Iscariot looks at Simon Peter and goes, well, I'm not washing your feet. Ew. And and they're all sitting around this table going, well, who's going to wash our feet? My feet, your feet? They'll stink. You know, and then there's Jesus in the room, the last person in the room who should be washing feet, who steps up and, and he takes off his outer garment, puts on a towel and kneels before his disciples and grabs their dirty and grimy and sweaty feet and begins to clean. That is uh, Jesus. And friends, this is who he is. This should be so significant to us today. Not merely because we're surrounded by broken people around us, and that really tells us what we ought to be doing and how we ought to be acting to the broken and the wounded. Not only because not brokenness hasn't really decreased since then in so many ways, but in new and more culturally relevant ways, brokenness appears to continue to abound all around us in these most pressing and daunting of ways. Uh, the mental health uh, epidemic that we face right now, not just. A across young people, but across all generations, our isolation and our loneliness, our distraction and our inability to commit, our great and turbulent fears that are overwhelming us. And let's talk about, you know, COVID-19 and impending financial recession, you know, Ukraine, there are so much suffering in our world today. That is why this is such a relevant scripture to us today, but it's not just because there's suffering around us, it's because it tells us something about who God is. It tells us that in the midst of his great and mighty and glory, that the God of all the universe, who crafted all things, who made the mountains as they rise up and the trees in the forest, he made the fish and the lakes in all of his splendor and wonder, the God of everything that is and could ever be in his most natural state is bent towards compassion, care, and serving. I wonder, do you know that Jesus today? Do you know that today? Do you know that today? That Jesus cares for you? No, like, I'm not just cliche taglining here. Do you know that in your heart today? That Jesus cares about you? That our Jesus is a Jesus who has chosen to serve you. Such a remarkable, remarkable love. Verse 12 goes on when he had finished washing their feet, he put on his clothes and he returns to his place. Do you understand what I have done for you? He asked them. You called me teacher, and that just means the revealer of what's true. And you call me Lord, which just means, you know, the one who should instruct, the one who I will follow. And rightly so, because that's what I am. But now that I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, so also should you wash one another's feet. I have set an example that you should do as I have done for you. And I want to point out that the example wasn't that one time Jesus got on his knees and washed some feet. Just throw your mind back to a few seconds ago. Jesus didn't serve once and say, that's enough. Jesus served with his life in such a beautiful and unparalleled way that he had reputations uh, of being the one you go to when you're suffering and the one who you can sit with in your lowestness. Like that is who Jesus is. And he says this, very truly I tell you, no servant is greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. Now that you know these things, you will be blessed if you do them. Ephesians chapter 2 verse 10 says this, for we are God's handiwork. You know the word handiwork? It literally means masterpiece. It means artwork. The, the word is translated as, um, imagine like a craftsman, uh, someone who, who uses their hand to make something beautiful. That's what this word means. We are Christ's handiwork, something he's proud that he has made. Uh, and we created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance to us to do. And that same book of Ephesians, it goes on in chapter 4 to say this. But to each of us, to each of us, Grace has been given as Christ apportioned it. Christ himself gave the apostles and the prophets, the evangelists, the pastors, and the teachers to equip his people, to equip his people for the works of service so that the body of Christ may be built up until we all reach unity in the faith and in the knowledge of the Son of God and become mature, attaining to the whole measure of the fullness of Christ. Or in other words, when Christ said, hey, you are my handiwork, you are my masterpiece, You are something I've made and I love and I'm proud of. Part of what it means to be a masterpiece in God's measure is that a part of you has been crafted with certain talents and certain gifts and certain opportunities and certain spiritual blessings and physical inclinations that God has given each and every one of us in the room to bless one another, to bless the church and to bless the world. And friends, perhaps in this room you wonder to yourself, well, I don't think I do have spiritual or physical or any kind of gifts at all to bless the world. Or perhaps you are trying to work out what those gifts might be. Or perhaps you've tried before and felt failure and and, and the bite still stings. Here's what I wanna let you know, that's okay. But it doesn't change what the scripture says. You are someone God is proud to have made. And in that pride, a part of you has been designed to do something stunning with your life and you have been gifted so you don't fail. You have been gifted that eternity may be shaken by these and this and the way you walk and do life. That is a stunning, stunning reality. In uh, 1920, there was a lady, her name was Betty Green. And she was born in Seattle. And from a young age, she was just obsessed, like fascinated with airplanes and flying and and whatnot. And so, you know, being obsessed with something, she decided to endeavor to pursue it. Uh, and, And by the age of 16... Like, I don't know if you get this. I know what, cast your mind back to what you were doing at the age of 16. Okay, right. I, I wasn't doing this. By the age of 16, this woman had managed to get her pilot's license in a day and an age, 1920, where women really weren't encouraged to be in the field of aviation that much. And she fought against any kind of you know oppression or judgment and said, I want this and I'm taking it. And I just, that shocks me. 16 years old, I hadn't done anything good with my life yet. So here's the thing. She had managed to acquire her pilot's license, and and then she felt something in her heart. Conflicted. She knew she had a passion to serve God, and she knew that she wanted to do that well, but she also knew she loved flying, and she didn't know how to marry these two things together. And so she stepped away from flying. She decided to endeavor to follow other things that perhaps uh, might be more in line with what she was expected to do in her society to serve God. She even started a nursing bachelor's and decided after two years it wasn't for her because there was this ghost, this voice that hounded her, this passion, this desire, this love of flying. And and, And World War II then broke out. And she got the opportunity to actually use her ability to fly, to actually serve her country. And she couldn't go onto the battlefield, but she served behind the scenes and used her abilities to help restock, supply support, even do test flights and trainings. And did all these things to to actually bless her country as flying. And when she finished after World War II, she made a decision in her heart. She said, I know that I would not love this as much as I do if God hadn't crafted some way I can use my gift and my talent to bless his kingdom and further his mission. And so what she did was she actually pioneered a movement called MAF, a movement I wanna point out that still exists today. And it was a movement that she um, pioneered to begin to bring the gospel into places in the world that were otherwise inaccessible. What a phenomenal idea. She said, what gifting do I have? What can I do? What do I love? What is something that just makes me excited? Now, how do I take that and just look for a hole in a need and say, Lord, I'm going to serve you in this way with this gift? What a brilliant idea. And you know, today, all across the world, in countries such as Mexico, Peru, Nigeria, all around the world, there is a legacy of churches that are still standing today that owe their heritage to her deciding to take a talent that wasn't mainline Christian talents, to take a talent and a passion God had given her and use it to serve Him. And this is the narrative that we see in Scripture God continuously says, continuously says, hey, I have crafted you. Don't be ashamed of yourself. I have crafted you and I have given you passions and talents and I have given you abilities and spiritual blessings. Now, would you just come and would you just serve? Would you lay them down to do a part and to be a part of what I'm doing in this world? That is what, what John chapter 13 is trying to teach us. That is the point Jesus is trying to make to us. And his story concludes with Jesus remarking on the titles that his followers had given him. It was a strange way to go, but he decided, this is what I will say next. You call me Lord and you call me teacher. You call me one who you would be willing to follow and live your life in the model of. And that is a good thing. And friends, it is a good thing because I don't know if you've ever done it, but I know for a fact that when I've gone my way and I've been confident I had it right and I've trusted the truths that I know which are so limited by my experience, I have continuously made bad decisions. I have continuously chosen the wrong option. I have continuously formed habits and rhythms that deform and break my life as opposed to habits and rhythms that continue to form me in in the image of Jesus and his thriving, his joy, his peace, and his hope. I wonder if you can relate to that. Because, friends, in this world, there are rhythms that bring life. Do you know that? There are rhythms that can actually bring death. There are things and ways and habits and the things we do with our time and with our hands and with our opportunities that actually are stunning blessings to our community. And it says, because you do this, you will be blessed. So they're not only stunning blessings to our community, but as we serve with our hands and our mouth and our talents and our time, they're actually blessings to us. But then there are ways we can spend our time and our talents that we think will bless us but actually ending up burdening. They end up hurting. They end up wounding. They end up robbing. And I don't think we have to think particularly hard to know that this is true. And the Bible doesn't shy away from saying, hey, there is a more beautiful way for you to live. There is a more beautiful reality for you to experience in your life. And choosing to lay down rhythms of serving have the power to absolutely bless these socks off of the communities you live in, off of the friends and the family members, and off of your own life. And that is worth pursuing. So what do we do? Okay, we're sitting here. Jesus served, and that was a really cool thing because Jesus isn't just saying, hey, buddy, I'm going to sit on a throne and I want you to do all the work. Jesus is on his throne in heaven, and what he's saying is this, I serving right now as well. I have served. I am passionate about the poor and the suffering. Would you partner with me as I care for them? Okay, we see Jesus, his serving nature, and we see his beckons and his call for us to do the same. So what do we do with that? Do we make like Betty? Do we sell what we own, get our pilot's license? Do we perhaps, I don't know, get a theology degree and all become preachers and teachers till the day that we die? Friends, if you consider the thing that you think is the most Christian thing you could do, and you say I'm going to spend the rest of my life doing that, and then you expect everyone has to do the same, then I wonder who would be tending and caring for the many needs that are not now being met. The reality is that you and I, We've all been called and blessed and, called, uh, and gifted by God according to his will as one body of believers to do something absolutely stunning in this world. And uh, the Bible, I love First Corinthians chapter 12. It's like, man, you're missing your little toe, you're going to notice it. And it might seem unnoticeable because it's just a little toe, but everybody knows it's noticeable when you stub it, right? And this is the thing. Like the smallest parts of us, the most uh, insignificant in our mind parts of us are the parts that God says, without it, you wouldn't be functioning. Friend, I wonder what your talent is. I wonder what your gifting is. I wonder how God might be calling you into a rhythm of serving today. And I wonder how you might be demeaning it and saying it's too small. It's not enough. You see, from the teacher and from the Lord, our God, we learn a couple of things about his calling for us. First is this. um, Serving one another actually doesn't have to be crazy. It doesn't have to be selling everything you own. As I pointed out before, feet washing wasn't really that extreme at all. Foot washing was a need. Foot washing was necessary. Foot washing was something that everyone had to do. And Jesus, though he was the last person in the room who should have done it, was the one who put his hand up and said, sure, it's a need and I'll do it. And I just wonder uh, today, in the most simple way possible, what ordinary everyday needs are existing around each of us today? What what, what needs are there around us that perhaps um, we're expecting someone else to do? But actually, just as easily, we could get up and do them. Perhaps there are people around us who we could make a rhythm of visiting. People who don't have anybody else. There is an epidemic of loneliness in our world. People feel isolated. What a simple rhythm to say once a week, I'm just going to go and visit one of these communities. I'm going to build a friendship with someone who I know doesn't have anybody else. Perhaps there are ministries that look after the homeless or foster kids or refugees. And and we could make a decision to take our gifts and our talents and our time and say, you know, they are a priority of mine. And I'm going to take, you know, once a week, once a fortnight, once a month, I'm going to take my time and I'm going to give a couple of hours to this mission and this ministry because I believe in the rhythm of serving. Perhaps there are talents in this very room of welcome or of worship that are not being used right now, but could be being used every Sunday right here. Well, I wouldn't make you serve every Sunday. But could be being used right here to bless and build up this community. It isn't a cool To be the most astounding, sacrificial, competitive, generous, kindest, reckless server. It's a call to sustainable habits that care for the people around us. That's it. The second thing we learn is that our Lord and our teacher was um, not afraid to show off that sometimes we face weaknesses that sometimes we have limitations. You know, this story begins by, by John pointing out that Jesus had like no time. And I know what you are thinking this room, like we bump into these reasons and these limitations and these excuses and they're real, but, but we think this should be enough to get me out of serving. How do I fit in doing something loving for someone else when I have all these commitments and all these promises and all these things I have to do and my life is so busy, I haven't got room for another layer of complexity to fill in that. And Jesus is like, yeah, neither do I. Verse 1, it was just before the Passover festival. Jesus knew that the hour had come for him to leave the world and go to the Father. Jesus literally had one night and a trial to finish everything he was doing before he would die. Friends, for all of the time we don't have, Jesus had less. Right? You see that? But Jesus said, I'm going to start this night following the rhythm of my life that I have crafted and cultivated for years. A rhythm of countercultural, counterintuitive serving that promotes the well being and the care and the concern of the people around me before I get overly concerned with myself. And it presses on saying that Jesus loved his friends. He says he loved his friends uh, and feeling that love, he chose to express and show it tangibly. I wonder in this room, you've ever walked past the homeless person? Now, I remember at a young age, I, I was in England, I was walking, and I just saw this person sitting on the floor and he was homeless. And I, obviously, I was too young to know oh, was, all the excuses for not giving to the homeless, you know, and, and, and I, I was just moved with compassion. And I, I was such a stubborn kid, still stubborn, but I was such a stubborn kid. And, and I turned to my mom and I was like, no give him money. <laughs> and I was like, give him a sandwich, do something. I just couldn't walk past the kid without mom. It didn't cost me anything. I was a kid. With a mom giving him something to bless him because I was stirred by compassion. I wonder, do we ever walk past homeless people and actually feel moved in the heart towards them? Do we ever see the suffering of people in our communities, all sorts of different areas and feel great and genuine love and then keep walking? In 1 Corinthians chapter uh, 13, verse 4, it says that love is patient and love is kind. And that word kind doesn't just translate as say a nice thing and move along. That word kind quite literally translates to something tangible, actionable, something you choose to do. It is a word of movement and the beginning of motion. And, and so the point that Jesus is making here is that we can't love in feeling alone. It's not enough. We can't just feel love for people and say, wow, I've done my job. We must see the people suffering around us, be moved with compassion, and say, I can't solve it, but I can do something. I can give a sandwich. I can contribute some toiletries. Or maybe we can do more. I don't know. And the third thing that we see in this context is is that Perhaps instead of love and softness, what we feel is cautiousness, uncertain, threatened, or apathetic, right? Perhaps we recognize that there are people around us that we have been called to bless who can actually never back. Uh, sorry, bless us back. That's hard. You want me to give away everything I have and, and there's literally no way they can ever bless me back? Or perhaps we know that we don't have a way to solve their problems, to fix their brokenness. Perhaps we know that when we start to care for someone, it will always get messy. Perhaps we know that loving and caring for people is actually a burden at times. And so we actually feel threatened or apathetic or distant because we're scared of what it could look like to bless with the gifts we have. You know, Jesus was in the company of someone he had called a friend for three years who was about to betray him. You know, the devil himself in the scripture it describes was moving in power against him to terminate everything good Jesus was doing in this world. Jesus was under immense pressure and siege and threats, and he had an answer. And it says in the scriptures, this was his answer. It says in verse three, Jesus knew that the father had put all things under his power and that he had come from God and he was returning to God. Or in other words, what Jesus did was he remembered who his God was and he remembered who his God had said he was and he remembered that he was in safe hands forevermore and he said, I know this is costly and I know this is difficult and I know my heart isn't particularly burdened and I feel a bit dry and apathetic but I also know I've been called to love and to bless and so I will do it anyway. You know, amidst these difficulties, we actually look to our Lord, our example, our teacher, and we see that there's a context that he's calling us to follow, us, follow him from. If our God, if our Lord did it with so little time, friends, so should we. If our teacher was willing to bless, with, to, to turn um, love into an action, then so should we. And if Jesus chose to face the messiness and the burden of serving through deep, deep intimacy with God, I think we should endeavor to do the same. There's a quote by a guy called Scott McKnight, and it says this, those who aren't following Jesus aren't his followers. It's that simple. Followers follow, and those who don't follow aren't followers. Followers. To follow Jesus means to follow Jesus into a society where justice rules, where love shapes everything. To follow Jesus means to take up his dream and work for it. My friends, I don't know if you know what the dream of Jesus is, so I'm going to describe it in a few seconds, for a few seconds. His dream was to see life abound, to see freedom as a tangible reality for all people. His mission, his dream was to see all addictions die, it was to see oppression cease, to see harmony spread over all communities. Friends, his dream was to see prosperity abound over his people, the church. And it's only his kingdom that can bring an end to injustice and pain and wounds that absolutely squash our society today. It's only his kingdom that can instigate a way of living that breeds joy and peace and hope and love and faithfulness not just between us and God in some religious ceremony but between one another for eternal difference it's only Jesus this is his dream and I wonder if we would let Jesus' dream seep into our dreams today I wonder if we would let Jesus' way seep into our ways today I wonder if you would take these life uh, these rule of life books that we gave out last week that will be given out on the way out if you don't have one and I wonder if you could flip to the page where it has this. And, and I wonder if you could take time in your life to reflect on how you can craft rhythms of serving as a part of your daily, weekly, monthly, quarterly, and annual habits of life. I wonder how prioritizing the needs and the brokenness of other people could work their way into the very nature and fabric of what it means to be you because you know that you are God's masterpiece, because you know that you have been built, remarkably built, with gifts and talents, opportunity and time to do something stunning. And it's a call that is unique and beautiful to you. See, friends, Jesus, He didn't just set an example of serving and just choose to get up and go, Jesus didn't just say, hey, here's a calling. Can you go do some serving, please? And then just leave us alone. He didn't give us gifts and talents and say, well, that's enough, hands off, see you. Jesus didn't just say serving's a rule we had to follow. Jesus made serving the very fabric of what he did to the point that he laid his own life down to serve us, to bless us, to care for us. He saw the brokenness and the wounds, the poverty and the pain that we were afflicting on other people as opposed to serving them. And he saw all the distance and all the gaps between where we live and where he was and said, all I want is to know my friend. All I want is is to build a bridge and to invite this person into my fellowship, into my embrace. So with his life, he said, I love you. Here's all I have. I just want to see you come home. Shocking and remarkable to our world that Jesus would give so, so much of who he was and love so richly that each of us today in this room may be recipients of that kindness. And he simply beckons us forward and says, hey, would you just taste the wonderful richness and kindness that I've given? Would you just taste it? Would you just soften your hearts and receive how loving I've been to you? maybe you can emanate just an inch of it to the water around you because it can change things. How about we pray together? Let the Lord do some speaking. Lord, I thank you so much that you are not done with any one of us in this room. That you have a purpose and a plan by the power of your Holy Spirit with all the goodness and all the kindness, with all the warmth and all, with all the warmth and all the compassion that you feel in your heart, to gently approach us right now and say, "Friend, I've made a way. Friend, you are so valuable. Friend, your life is not wasted, and your days on this earth, though numbered, are not ineffective. They will shake eternity. Would you join with me as partners of serving, God? We thank you so much that that is what you invite us into." We thank you so much that you are stirring hearts in this room to say, well, what talents do I have? What gifts do I have? How can I lay them down before you? And Lord, I just pray right now as we're we're in this moment of seeking you in response to this, I pray right now, Lord, that your goodness and your mercy, your care and concern that initiated, that moved first, will begin unhinging the hardest parts of our hearts right now and we could begin to fall more in love, more richly, more deeply in love with who you are for maybe in this room you've never heard the gospel of Jesus perhaps you've never known that Jesus loves you as much as he does perhaps you've never heard that that he is so concerned and caring not with your failures but with making way in spite of your failures he's not concerned with all your you know absolute smallness but in the midst of your smallness he endeavors to meet you today right now in this room and say welcome home can we be friends you're safe here Jesus, we just thank you so much for your love. May you make it known to us in a beautiful and new way. Jesus, in your mighty and beautiful name we pray, amen. Maybe in this room, as the sermon's been being preached, you're thinking to yourself, I love the idea of serving God, but I don't know how. I don't know what that means. I'm not sure what I have to bring. I'd love to meet you under the cross over there at some point. If you come forward, I'll meet you there. And I would love to pray with you. Perhaps in this room you've served and served and you've been burned and you've been hurt. I'd love to meet you under the cross over there. I would love to pray with you during worship or after. But friends, how about we stand and respond to the beautiful love of God with worship.